Hello, and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast about campus politics in the end times. We are your hosts, Laura Martin and David Spataro. Today, we're going to be talking about the recent UC strike with Magali Miranda Alcázar, a doctoral candidate in the Chicanex and Central American Studies Department at UCLA and an activist working at the intersection of gender, race, labor, and technological disruptions. MAGA was a participant in the strike and active in the rank-and-file movement to push for a no vote against contract ratification. Because of the length of our discussion with MAGA, we've decided to split the interview into two parts. We're presenting you with part one today. In part one, we focus on the prehistory of the strike, the working and living conditions that led up to it, the student activism from 2009 to the present that influenced the strike, and the importance of internal politics and political factions within the union, UAW 2865. Before we go to our interview, here is a very brief summary of the strike for listeners who might not know. The strike began on November 14, 2022, with 48,000 graduate student workers, postdocs, and researchers. While some postdocs and researchers finalized a deal early on, the graduate student workers remained on strike for five weeks. The strike ended in mid-December with a contentious ratification vote. While the yes vote won by about a 60% majority, a significant minority rejected the contract because it did not fulfill key demands such as COLA, cost of living adjustment, COPS off campus, childcare subsidies, dependent healthcare, waiving non-resident tuition, and disability access. Now, let's turn to our interview with MAGA. Okay, good morning, MAGA. Hi, it's good to see you. Full disclosure, we do, MAGA and I know each other, we have a past. I was actually remembering that I think we were in some student activism together, even though I don't remember if I was still a grad student at the time, but I remember being in an occupation with you. Okay, probably. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Circa maybe like 2015 or... Anyway, so we're we're here today with MAGA to talk about the UC strike. And we wanted to start out just by understanding a little bit like the working conditions at UCLA. You know, what's it like being a grad worker and what conditions led to the strike? Yeah. First off, just, I want to say thanks for having me. Um, I was just saying off the record that I've been having some really fantastic conversations with people about the strike. And every time we get off the phone, I'm like, this should be a podcast. So I just want to appreciate you all for having the, the foresight to put this together and for having me so yeah, I'm a, my name is Maga. I use she and they pronouns. I'm a sixth year um, grad student at UCLA and in the Chicanx and Central American Studies Department. Um, and I was one of the 48,000 students that went on strike at UC uh, recently in the fall quarter. Um, And I just want to, I guess, start off by saying that my experience isn't, uh, I don't speak for everyone. Uh, And I think that's really important because when you're in a strike of this size, there's going to be a lot of um, like a multi-vocality. And I think that that's when we lean into that, that's actually really rich. So I, you know, when I talk about my experience, it's, it's my experience with all my baggage and all my privileges. So um, I have had a somewhat privileged position at UC. I'm, I talk about being like one of the, the 1% of um, social science and humanities scholars that's been able to be funded through the Ford Predoctoral Fellowship. Mm. Um, so in terms of TAing, um, you know, I have colleagues who've TAed 10 times as many times as me. Um, and, but I have, you know, had odd jobs. I worked for the Mellon Mays program. And I think that's really important when we talk about academic labor and academic workers unions is that I think it is while we want to celebrate that um, teaching assistants who do the bulk of like grading and um, holding discussion sections do a lot of work. 
um, and and now it's recognized in uh, unionized in UAW two eight six five that the work that we do is actually goes so far beyond that kind of like neoliberal <laughs> understanding of like where our work begins and ends. Um, and that's kind of where I'm coming from, right? Like I don't TA, but I do all kinds of mentorship, uh, especially being in, in the ethnic studies. One of the things that we talk about a lot is just how much we hold together the university in terms of like being the, the folks that students from like pre-med or pre-law, you know, come and cry in our office. Um, and I think that's, that's really important. Um, and, and we don't get paid hardly shit for it. <laughs> um, excuse my French. Um, so I had a colleague, I wrote an op-ed at the sort of at, towards the beginning of the strike uh, week three uh, about the experience of a colleague of mine who lives in university housing. I'm I'm from LA, so I don't live in university housing, but um, this colleague of mine paid $6,000 uh, for housing in at uc housing subsidized housing and made five thousand dollars as a ta for that whole summer right. uh, sorry as a teaching fellow so that's kind of when we're talking about the demands the big one um sorry the demands of the strike the reason why we went out on strike it's really um the big one is just the cost of living cost of living that you know we're not paid enough to basically live in the places where we have to work and you know post pandemic they're also like forcing us back to in-person classes so there's no really like possibility of you like teaching online and living somewhere where the cost of living is cheaper you really have to live in that place and and at places like you see Santa Cruz where the cost of living is exorbitant um and the rent is just rising at like rates of 60 percent since our last contract right um the kind of standard raises of you know 7.5 percent just don't cut it so we were asking not for a raise but for a, a cost of living adjustment that would um make it so that our salaries don't our real wages aren't just decreasing every year because of it, they can't keep up with inflation right yeah um if you don't mind i actually i have uh the brooklyn rail article here and i just wanted to read a couple just in the beginning a couple of testimonies that i think just uh, you know speak to what you're saying in terms of the conditions for people so one person writing um that they live in the san francisco bay area i currently make $30,000 per year, and I pay about 55% of that directly to my landlord. On top of that, I am a parent to a young child. The exorbitant cost of childcare, including in the UC's own childcare facilities, some of which charge as much as $2,750 per month, exacerbates my rent burden to the point where I often had to choose between healthcare, childcare, groceries, utilities, and rent. And another person, um, teaching assistant at UC Santa Cruz, where rents, as you said, you know, have they've risen 67% since 2018. Um, my partner and I spend $2,990 on a two-bedroom duplex each month. Uh, she spends 60% of her monthly wages on rent. Yeah, and I think you're bringing up uh, a couple of really <laughs> important points, but one that our initial demands of the strike were $54,000 base pay plus the cost of living adjustment. Mm -hmm. um, and what we were saying is that in the grand scheme of things, that raise would have taken us from 1% of UC's budget to 3% of UC's budget. <laughs> wow, that's wild. Um, so what we were asking for was already the compromise, right? So later, I think I know later on, we're going to talk about the the compromise and the betrayal <laughs> um the end of the strike but just to say that when we went on strike initially we were asking for 54k plus of cost of living adjustment which to us was very at, at the very beginning at least you know 48,000 strong we felt was we we had 
pretty good ground, pretty good standing, like the moral high ground, right? That this is not only are our conditions horrible, but in the grand scheme of things, relative to how much we do for the university on a day-to-day basis, like we are super, super exploited and we're just asking to be a little bit less exploited, like literally just to be able to survive. And then the second thing is that um, the strike authorization vote also went along with a survey that was done by the union um, of like what we might call like um, non-economic or extra-economic um, demands, which um, you you pointed out to a little bit with the childcare. Um, and these were kind of like priorities for students that we we said in mass, right, in, in this survey that were really, really important to us to um, negotiate over. And the big ones being, um, you know, disability justice. So there's a group called UC Access Now who's been doing just amazing work um, around COVID protections and ADA accommodations. Um, and so two of the important things that we voted on with the strike authorization vote was a mandate to um, try to get extend ADA accommodations for um, folks with disabilities and create a COVID protection article in our contract. Um, other things included uh, the childcare, you know, uh, augmenting the amount of of childcare subsidies um, that you see could easily do right because it's all money that's going to go back in their pocket. Same thing with. Uh, similar to rent. Um, we're also asking for dependent care because um, currently currently people with dependents, be it like spouses or um, children, their dependents aren't covered in our health care. And so you might have great health care, but then your children are on Medicare, Medi-Cal. Um, really? I didn't know that dependents weren't covered. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, cops off campus, which I think is a little bit more of a controversial one, but it was in the top five, you know, reasons why people authorize the strike. Um, and I'm, I'm, not, oh, there was one I'm missing. I'm like, there's one I'm missing. It's a huge one, actually. I mean, they're all huge, but NRST, which is the non-resident student tuition, and that is basically a tax on international and um, immigrant students who study at UC are charged $15,000 to attend. So basically you're paying your employer out of pocket Mm -hmm. um, to be able to attend UC. Mm -hmm. Everything you just listed made my blood boil, (laughs) especially (laughs) the dependent uh, one. I mean, I have a five-year-old now and just, you know, not having healthcare for the people in your family who you love and are so close to you. It just sounds so terrible along with all that other stuff. I was glad that you mentioned the nature of work because I was reading through some of the journalism and found it to be pretty sloppy in referencing the 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 wage demand was for part-time work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like without the direct experience of what this is, a lot of people might read that as if, okay, you're going to make that for half time and then maybe you pick up other work. Can you sort of just describe like what is being left out? Because... Um, there's obviously basically I mean I think the message is people are overworked and that is their main income there isn't just an extra 20 hours a week to go do something um yes I'm glad you brought that up um I was talking to a friend of mine who's works in the trades is he's a teamster and he was like I'm trying to understand this amount that you're asking for is for part-time work and it was just like, I laughed out loud because it is really hard when you're in an industry that's not a traditional industry to explain to someone who's in a very traditional industry, like the work that we do. Um, so I had to kind of back up. And I think this is really key to my kind of standpoint or where I'm coming from, which is that um historically, it's been a fight even to recognize that we do 50% work and you see you know I, I hope to hear a little bit more from Laura in a bit about that kind of fight the the multiple rounds of fight but the original fight to get academic workers unions recognized was also a fight to have our work recognized as labor uh in the first place and not just kind of like 
that were students who volunteer, right? Job they, training. Like, aren't you lucky that you get job right, training and you're even getting paid anything for it? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, historically, this is also because historically in our industry, the people that do this kind of work are independently wealthy. Mm. You know, it's, it's a very elitist industry where, you know, the people that it's, a, you know, we're talking about Nepo babies are in the media right now. Like, <laughs> academia is full of Nepo babies because historically um, the only people that have the independent wealth to be able to fund like an, what's basically a six year, seven year, five year unpaid internship are Nepo babies. Um, so even to get recognition for the part-time quote unquote part-time work that we do ha is really historic and, and groundbreaking and there's more work to be done. And actually this is a, another part of the reason why we went on strike is that for the first time ever, um, besides UAW 2865, there's going to be a new unit or now there is now that the strike ended. Um, there's a new unit, which is uh, SRU UAW and that's um, Student Researchers United. And that is a group of students like myself who don't TA, but do all kinds of other um, academic labor. So when you're talking about um, part-time work, I always think about this in terms of also the fight for 15, which is something that I kind of brought up. This is some of my research is on kind of the quote unquote alt labor movement, but that fight for 15 had a similar kind of issue of um, misrecognition of who the workers are. Um, in the fight for 15 fight, they, a, a big part of their work uh, during the strike and all that kind of like movement was um, changing the public's perception of who an academic, sorry, of who a, a restaurant worker, fast food worker was, because in the kind of popular imaginary, you have this idea of like a teenager who maybe does this part-time uh, and, you know, quote unquote, high schoolers shouldn't be getting paid more than $15 an hour. Like it's kind of, um, it's like pocket change that is, is superfluous. So a lot of what the five for 15 did in their actions were to do like testimonial and, and storytelling, like the kind that uh, Laura pointed to earlier of just like who we are uh and and what came out of the five for 15 was just this recognition that they were you know a lot of them were breadwinners a lot of them were had children and dependents and so kind of flew in the face of that idea and so i think we have a similar issue in academia and in grad work specifically where we're not grad workers a lot of times we're seen as grad students and so when you add that kind of label of the student you automatically are like well why do students need you know, to be making so much. Well, because students are really apprentices who are, you know, thir 30 and 30 something, 40 something, mm. uh, have our own house. We might be the primary breadwinner. We might have children, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's like work, ideological work and mm. kind of PR work that I think wasn't fully explored to the max in a way that it could have, but it came out in, in these kinds of testimonials, like the Brooklyn rail piece, um, by the Santa Cruz workers and, and other people. Yeah. I, I want to get into that a little bit more, like maybe a little later when we start kind of talking more about the transformative power of the strike, but, uh, there's so much to cover, but I feel like we need to try to, before we get into the strike itself, talk a little bit about kind of like the prehistory of it you know, a little bit about UAW 2865, the kind of internal politics there, um, pr prior efforts that sort of led up to this. So maybe we can try to kind of piece some of this together, you know, together. To, <laughs> because yeah. so I was a grad student at UC Santa Cruz about 10 years before UMAGA, um, uh, around like 2008 to 2014 ish. Mm. Um, so I, I saw some earlier waves. I mean, I think what happened now is a, is a much bigger movement, but there was a, a big California wide and to some degree national higher ed movement in 2009. 
so back in 2009 it, for for us if i remember correctly like schwarzenegger was governor and he was trying to uh increase we don't officially call it tuition right it's fees because you know technically ucs are supposed to be free um so but they were trying to increase it by a third um mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so there was a huge wave of student activism it was you know it was different it definitely the uaw was not really involved um we had a, a couple of student strikes where we shut down the college for a few days um but those were not organized through the union and they were not sanctioned um and it was a little more focused around like building occupations and things like that. But we were actually successful in stopping that tuition or that fee increase. Um, and I think that um, at the same time, and this is what I don't remember as well, there was all of this kind of internal organizing around the the um the leadership of 2865 mm -hmm. and definitely like when I first came to grad school I was a steward and I was I like basically was also sort of naively like oh wow I'm gonna be a steward in my union and then I realized that everyone hated the union <laughs> and hated the leader. like everyone all of the other like little kind of lefty union activists like hated the leadership yeah. and so I kind of quickly saw the reactionary nature there and was being kind of shown the ropes of that. I wasn't active in ADU. I have to say that at that moment in my trajectory, I was just, I just didn't have the patience for it, to be honest. I was like, really? What's the point of this? You know, yeah. um, I do totally respect the work that they did, but they were sort of forming around that time when I was a graduate student. So ADU is the Academic Workers for a Democratic Union. It's like a exactly caucus, uh, that came out yeah. 2008, 2009. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, um, I don't know, I was going to ask if you knew this. Maybe we could, we need to do a little more research on it. Because after I left, they did actually run a successful slate. And they did kind of take over leadership for a few years. But then my understanding is there was kind of like a, you know, counter- <laughs> counter-revolution and the status quo people kind of came back into power so I don't know if you know anything about that yeah I mean this is the very recent history of mm -hmm. of the union so yeah I'm, I think Audu is going to be a kind of interesting thing to think about uh in this so you're you're describing like Audu as the reform caucus it's kind of yes. for people who don't know it's kind of like the um, Teamsters for a Democratic Union mm -hmm. Teamsters um, and it was a bunch of radicals, lefties in student movement. What I understand from what I've learned about that history is that early on the, the, the move into the union was kind of, um, an outgrowth of like, well, what do we do after the kind of student movement, after that kind of lull mm -hmm. in the student movement? Like, why don't we take over the union and, um, and like, cause currently the union is uh, a kind of business unionist very much a model so, yeah. that that is like an impediment to our vision of a kind of free university. So, from my understanding, the the move into the union was a originally conceived of as like an extension of the student movement, and then I think became kind of in in and of itself like a a union battle and I think this is where there's like disagreement about like how much importance the fight in the union versus right. outside there's of like, the union yeah there's like, like a kind of outside strategy yes. stuff yeah uh-huh so my understanding is that the at a certain point the fight moved into the union like fully like a fully inside the union um and very little organizing outside of the union mm -hmm. uh, in a way that kind of um that ultimately led to like the lowest number of union engagement in history oh wow okay so yeah there's like this kind of um accusation that audu became substitutionist like we're gonna kind mm -hmm. of pass motions and um within the union 
and not really kind of building like the movement part of it, which was the kind of lifeblood of wow. Audu in the beginning. That's so interesting because that was obviously their a big part of their critique of the original leadership. I mean, there's obviously like a whole other kind of thing to explore here just around what happens when you become, you know, the leadership and what are exactly. the kind of dynamics of like sort of maintaining a union that tend to and I think that's certain not- politics. Go ahead. Exactly. And so then you have this kind of the reactionary movement that you're talking about is this group called uh this caucus called OWSP. I don't know what it's oh, what does that stand for? Do you know? I don't know what it stands for. <laughs> OWSP and like, those are not letters that seem obvious to I anything I can think of. Occupy Wall Street. There's not like a D for democracy in there. Occupy like... Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what OWSP is. I should know this. Um, we do need to do a little more research. But a lot of them are are based in LA and kind of came to power my first and second year. So I have like oh, okay. also a personal story with some of them, and they're the folks that are in power now. But it's um the big campuses are UCLA and Berkeley, um, where you had these kind of like astroturfy oh, okay. movements that were um like rank and file I mean because audio was in power so technically they were rank and file movements and they're they read a lot of Jane McAlevey which is interesting oh, okay <laughs> they read a lot of Jane McAlevey there some of them are DSA mm. like the conservatives in DSA and they basically it's exactly what you're saying that they used kind of the it sounds like there was some like infiltration and like co-optation mm-hmm. um that happened so that um they were able to say like we're the voice of the rank and file because look at how um the audios neglected kind of the the rank and file voices so we're but, actually the the majority kind of thing like did a- they have like more conservative vision of union politics mm-hmm. so what i from what i understand of their politics again in my limited understanding of them, like my ethnography of UCLA. <laughs> um, I think they're really interested in something called majoritarian politics. Um, mm. So for them, the, you know, even for me early on in the strike, I was like, okay, well, maybe they're onto something because they were able to organize um, a strike authorization vote of 98%. So that was their, that's sort of their aim. But in reality, what this looks like is a politics of catering. It's like populism, right? So it's always catering to the most conservative elements mm-hmm. in the union. Um, and that's really when you're talking about like the kind of critiques of substitutionism, you also have to be thinking about like how it's coded, like racially coded, because they basically were like um, the Adu at that time was pushing for like cops off campus and this demand and to to someone who has a kind of majoritarian worldview like OWSP they're always going to think that that's like alienating the majority um because anti-blackness is popular (laughs) so being anti-black is kind of part and parcel of their kind of majoritarian organizing and you saw this on the first like week of the strike when you know black women at UCLA and the picket lines were trying to chant cops off campus and they were saying like don't chant cops off campus Mm. um a lot of us us the latinx contingent was trying to like play bad bunny and they were like no we could only play dolly Dolly parton nine to five (laughs) and like i love dolly but you know what i mean it's kind of just so i think for owsp it was really it's been a restoration of those you know what you're saying kind of like a revival of some old school unionist politics and it was happened to be coupled with um the leadership of adu really kind of moving into i think union the arena of of unions like fully inside um that kind of corresponded with that so the the strike saw I think saw some of those lines started to be drawn like early on, but there was also just the impetus because they're business unionists at the end of the day to like suppress rank and file organizing and just try to push through a contract as soon as possible. And the power of the strike was really that 
the rank and file self-organized, um, not as Adu, not as uh, any kind of oppositional caucus per se, but just as a really like grassroots um, movement. And I should say that also a huge part of this is the Santa Cruz wildcat strike that happened. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. 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 So a huge, huge, huge part of this is it, it is grassroots and there is some kind of leadership that again is not a caucus. It's not organized as Adu or, or any other kind of um, oppositional caucus, but is um, a sort of organic leadership that's come out of um, Santa Cruz <clears throat> and Santa Barbara too, but Santa Cruz being the main one uh, because during after 2008, <clears throat> they the same thing happened right ow that was owsp's kind of um test case of whether they could push it i was at ucla at the time and i had folks i knew folks in santa cruz who were saying like vote down this contract it's really bad for santa cruz like you're saying right 67 percent mm. from 2008's contract to now their um cost of living their rent went up 67 percent so whatever kind of like um business as usual raise that they got was just they knew in 2008 even that it was going to be um a death sentence for them and they I think they were less organized you know at the time to kind of fight back around it and yeah. so they had this entire time to kind of um coalesce around a kind of like organizing base that was really a base for other campuses like us at UCLA, um, they were, they were providing kind of like an alternative vision of power, which was around kind of building the long haul strike, withholding labor, as opposed to OWSP's, which OWSP's plan, the which was the majority uh, leadership plan was like, let's get this majoritarian strike, right, 48,000 people. And we're gonna go out on strike, go out on the picket. UC is going to get scared about how many people or bodies are on the line and like concede to our demands. But then when they don't concede, then we make more and more concessions. Um, mm. So the first thing that mm. went was COLA, then they cut 54K to like 30. I don't even remember now what the drop was, but like a $12,000 drop. My math is all wrong. And then, you know, and so on and so on. And never touched cops off campus. Right. Uh, never even introduced it in some cases. Um, dropped NRST, dropped dependent care, all these other things. Um, and so by the end of it, you had people just voting yes on the contract because they were just really, really demoralized. But all the meanwhile, all the people who were under this kind of like sphere of influence of the minority um leadership like santa cruz and right. santa barbara but also just again autonomous rank and file organizing of all kinds um they were kind of a little bit more willing to recall the <clears throat> or force the resignation of the current bargaining team majority and kind of um keep going with a with a different vision of power that involved like the long haul strike Mm -hmm. And then, of course, OWSP being great, uh, like I mentioned, that co-optation, we're also pushing for the yes vote, using all of our dues paid resources to push for the yes vote and saying like, well, this is the long haul. This is the long haul. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We accept this horrible contract and then we come back out in two and a half years. All right. Yeah. The, the, there's always the like, well, th this this will plant the seeds for when we come back, when a lot of you guys won't even be here anymore. <laughs> we'll have 100%. another strike. Yeah. Um, just the the wildcat, I just wanted to say, well, first of all, you said 2008, but I think you meant 2018, right? 18, 18. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I thought that was really, it was interesting, like to, to observe from afar. And it showed me, I, I think how much the rhetoric had changed from when I was in grad school, because I, and this kind of goes back to something you said earlier. I, I think when I was a grad student, the idea that we were workers and that what we were doing was work and that we deserved a living wage was pretty tenuous. Like that was a really controversial thing to say. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't something that even I, I felt like a lot of, you know, faculty in my department were ready to accept. Um, and I think in part just academia has changed so much the job prospects for grad students have changed so much and that in combination with all of this cost of living 
you know, I think it like, what is the saying? Like the needle has moved or something <laughs> where like when, when um, grad students were saying this during the wildcat strike, you know, I think is that when cola for all kind of became the catchphrase Yeah, that, that was new. And I, I was surprised to the degree that I saw that rhetoric kind of being accepted, like even in, you know, media accounts, um, there was, there was something had shifted, you know what I mean? And I feel like there, I, I was noticing that um, grad student labor had kind of more legitimacy and the, the notion of that everyone should kind of be able to sort of live, you know, and have this cost of living, you know, I mean, whatever, all of this stuff, it's like, the, like, yeah, the things be. that we have to fight to get people to recognize it's, you know, absurd, but, but still, like, I do think that there was this older model that's like, well, you guys are all going to go and be like professors and make lots of money. Like, as you were saying, like, assuming this kind of like elite identity, you know, and reality has just been so brutal the last like 10 or 15 years that I think even, the average, you know, LA Times reader has kind of had to change their perspective, you know? <laughs> the LA Times. I mean, I don't know, you know, you could well, because, because I, they've had like decent coverage, as you were saying. They did have decent coverage. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right that there's a also like a generation shift. I have a friend who's always like, I can't wait for the Zoomers to like be in the in these unions. And there is definitely, I think that sense from the point of you bring up a point about faculty that I guess I kind of want to get oh okay I'm curious about that I think there's still this culture of well I struggled in Mm -hmm. grad school so you have to struggle too I've had that I've been told that so many times um and you know the cost of living was bad when I was in school but I think there's just this recognition that of how bad things have gotten that you don't it had like it it's never been like this bad and it's probably it probably was bad but it's never been like this bad and you have a generation that's just not willing to be gaslighted anymore (laughs) (laughs) it's just like no um yeah but all that to say that I think that faculty towards the end of the strike for sure we saw we're also seeing a shift in how faculty understand their position so at uc faculty are not unionized except at santa cruz apparently their senate faculty uh faculty senate is actually uh, unionized now um which again santa cruz kind of paving the way for like this transformative organizing um but at even at ucla i've spoken to faculty who are sort of like understanding this strike as truly transformative of like the kind of neoliberal university there are also faculty who wax poetic about being militant and then at the end of the day when push comes to shove we're um disciplining folks are disciplining folks after the fact um when grades were due um when the contract was ratified so the union passed pushed the contract ratification vote during the winter break which is something that they love to do in 2008 it was also over the summer break to try to like um have low participation numbers uh to suppress rank and file participation and we were so fucking tired after five weeks of being on strike. And then all we wanted to do was be on vacation. But some of us who were watching this kind of organized regardless. But so because of that, some people's contracts didn't end until like dis- December 30th, 30th or January 1st or whatever. And you see claim that from... December 27th to December 29th are technically not holidays because the holidays are Christmas and New Year's. <laughs> and so a lot of TAs were pushed from 27th to the 29th to submit grades. So all their grading Whoa. that had to do had to be done like right after Christmas before New Year's. Um, and there are some faculty that were pushing that. All that to say that I think that there's 
also a kind of a break with faculty happening right now that will be interesting to watch because some of them are, you know, some of them are working within this neoliberal university and have critiques of it and have just been kind of really complacent with the whole um, structure of it for way too long. Yeah. In a way that the, the needle's also moving, Laura. Seriously. Yeah. I think yeah. we have a really nice background for discussing the no vote, but before we get there, I do want to hear a little bit more just about the the daily life on strike. So um, we did want to hear about like the picket lines, the mood, the feel. I know a lot of organizing was going on on them, teach-ins and all the things that you mentioned. So I'd love to, before we get to the no vote, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what kind of daily life on the picket line was like for you and your peers yeah I mean I want to write a longer article about this because I think this is actually super super important um the strike was really for me like um the first few weeks of the strike week one and two we were just kind of like all just happy to be here in mass <laughs> uh, my comrade Jean McAdoo wrote a beautiful piece about um, about kind of like the culture of the first few weeks, first few days, first few weeks of the picket lines, which was just like really a lot of excitement. He, he talks about in that article, like the feeling of all of us kind of chanting in mass uh, about these transformative demands, like really feeling in your soul that it was possible that mm -hmm. we did everything, right? So I just want to start off by saying that, that in the beginning, that's sort of how it felt. Again, there was always from the beginning at, at a, it also varies campus by campus. Again, so my experiences with UCLA and UCLA being kind of like a stronghold of the more conservative caucus, um, it was also very disciplinarian, authoritarian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what you had, and this is, uh, I think, going to be really key to, to moving forward. What you had was like not depart not union stewards but something called um picket line picket strike leaders psls we always be like the psl the party for social liberation <laughs> or no no the psls because psl was also there <laughs> but, which psl are you talking yeah, about pumpkin spice latte so the psls <laughs> were kind of cherry picked before the strike by the leadership to be kind of like rank and file astroturf members who would ultimately like discipline the the rank and file kind of grassroots movements into whatever so at some point right whenever when the this is related to the yes and no vote because when the ratification vote came about it was the picket strike leaders who had been like getting arrested like doing civil disobedience who kind of were given this kind of like authority and legitimacy um to speak on behalf of the rank and file for a yes vote. Oh, interesting. So we call them staff core. At a certain point, we call them staff core. Um, and it, I think over the first few weeks, people started to feel the lines kind of started to be drawn for some people who were like, okay, well, I'm either going to be taking leadership from these staff core people who don't let us play Bad Bunny or chant cops on campus. Or we have to set up our own kind of networks. And so in, I think it was like week two or three that the Discord server went up. And it was like this rank and file Discord server, which was not mediated, which is moderated by rank and file members, not moderated by the union. You had signal chats going up. One of um, UC Santa Cruz's the Santa Cruz leadership's kind of like suggestion was to organize by campus. So for them, it was less important that people show up at, at the picket lines. So this is what happened, right? That after week one, you started getting people in South campus to scab who were scabbing. So their picket lines were getting more and more sparse, like almost immediately. And mm. that led OWSP, the union leadership, the some call, people call them the admin caucus mm. to draw a conclusion that we had reached peak power because mm. the more the most conservative um members had started scabbing already and were not their bodies were not at the picket line so for them that that ended peak power so what happened was you saw kind of just like a 
proliferation of other kind of rank and file activism and and really I think as a comms person myself I think the comms we really can't overstate the importance of the autonomous rank and file communications network which I think is also something Laura that I've been told was is super different from previous kind of iterations of the struggle uh, yeah we I mean we didn't have you know we didn't really have Instagram and and all that back yeah in and then yeah the Instagrams went the up memes so and the, Berkeley yeah. rank and file has this really had this really popular Instagram called Berkeley rank and file and their campus like us that was um staff core let like very staff core heavy so you had Berkeley rank and file kind of um creating TikToks and you know whatever so then you start to see like most campuses having this so UCLA rank and file goes up UC Davis rank and file Irvine rank and file San Diego rank and file um some of these were like the what before were like the cola cola solidarity kind of groups also became like these um cola slash rank and file groups that were kind of posting alternative information so people were doing their own research on the the contract and being like, wait, this is not okay. Whereas the union comms and the union at the picket line were um, saying like, this is great. Like the first, <laughs> the first um, like counter offer that the UC presented after like, I don't know, after like a stalemate for a really long time, like they, they didn't come to the table for weeks. And the first th- time they came to the table was like to offer us 28,000 or something mm-hmm. from from 24,000 to 28,000. And the union was like, this is historic. <laughs> this is great. It's the a very serious offer. And this is always their kind of rhetoric, right? And so people started to kind of see that it was really cheesy and corny and bullshit and started to kind of um, get plugged into the signal chat, the discord chat, following different groups. Um, at UCLA, folks were doing um, teach-ins, like teach-ins about rank and file power and just like teaching people at the picket line about the contract and were able to like flip certain um, campuses, like certain picket lines. So the social science and humanity picket line eventually kind of completely flipped. So even the staff, the quote unquote staff were there. I kept saying, joking that we captured one of their generals because, <laughs> or some of their generals. <laughs> because they were like started to kind of wake up to it but but there was also just a lot of um rhetoric about the rank and file being anti-union and union busting so Mm -hmm. there was a lot of um kind of backlash and also just like reddit style really hateful like alt-right style Mm -hmm. shit because i say the coalition in power is like the anti-woke left of the DSA and mm. the alt-right. Yeah. Um, so, and then the kind of leadership of the rank and file was like people of color, women, queer, folks with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and they call us all union busters. So, you know, you could write a whole book probably just about this. And that's kind of like a rough sketch. I don't know if you had any kind of specific questions about that. Oh, like the, in terms of, uh, there was a lot of fear mongering too mm-hmm. so people who would have kind of joined the rank and file and i should say that the rank and file group right in, in it was really about providing information for a lot of us who were there just providing accurate information so in addition to these kind of like teachings about rank and file history uh and about just like the contract in plain english there was also Um, folks from Colombia who had just had a no vote who were talking to us about that we had um, lawyers who worked with them and I I think from Michigan who were like coming in and giving us just like alternative information Uh, I kept saying like I fought in the info wars of 2022 (laughs) it really was at some point just like info wars because one of the things that the union leadership kept saying was that if was using fear-mongering tactics, especially the first few weeks, was that if we didn't come to the table and make these huge concessions, then we would be bargaining in bad faith and that UC would be able to declare an impasse and then impose a really bad contract on, on us, like mm-hmm. worse than the one we have mm-hmm. on the table. 
So there was like this big fear of impasse also. And then again, that kind of trickled down through like staff core, this kind of middle management of the rank and file. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the rank and file organizing was also just about presenting accurate information about like, okay, here are examples of people who've, of other unions who voted no with Columbia being sort of like the big one because it just happened in 2020, 2021. And, and a lot of them are like activated now. Um, but also like at Ford and different kinds of, um, just trying to give a more realistic picture of like, these are, this is some of the bad things that could happen. These are some of the good things that can happen. It's like, and so eventually there was a mediator. Eventually the union bargaining team decided to volunteer, enter into voluntary mediation with UC. And, um, it was Daryl Steinberg, who's a Democratic mayor of Sacramento, and he basically pushed the current contract that we have now, which is a 7.5% raise, mm-hmm. which is below, a below inflation raise mm-hmm. the first um, few months. And then we get a big raise, a 16% point something percent raise in 2024. That concludes part one. Part two of our interview, we get into more depth on the dynamics of the strike as it unfolded, the importance of non-economic demands such as cops off campus and disability access, the political ideology of the union leadership versus that of rank and file activists, and the impact of the strike on future campus politics. Our theme music is by Nigel Weiss. Our artwork is by Arthur Kay. You can find more of their artwork at rotradio.tumblr.com. We would love it if you subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. Rate and review us on all the major platforms. Thanks for listening. Bye.